We're really glad you're here. Welcome to Growing Deeper. It's our third third teaching time on this. Uh, Pastor Jeff did the last two weeks on the evidence for the resurrection. Awesome, awesome teaching. If you haven't listened to that, I would encourage you to go back and uh, on the podcast, go to the podcast and listen to that. And uh, we're just very, very fortunate to have that technology and that privilege. I'd like to pray before we start tonight. Lord, uh, we're going to talk about you breathing on the early writers, uh, the apostles and the authors of the Bible. And God, I'd humbly ask you to breathe on us tonight in the power of the Holy Spirit. That we can hear and understand and learn what it is you want us to learn about the Bible tonight. And Father, uh, we give you all praise and glory for the privilege and the opportunity to meet together like this. We don't take that for granted, but God, we're so grateful you're here with us and uh, you're in it all. So God, we commit our night to you by faith and uh, we're grateful to be able to do so. We pray for your strength in Jesus' name. Amen. Yesterday morning, I was in uh, McMillan's uh, restaurant, had breakfast with somebody, met with them, and I went up to the countertop, countertop, (laughs) went up to the cashier to the counter to pay the bill, and uh, when I opened my phone, which I just thought carried credit cards in it, and I pulled out my credit card, my business card came flying out right below my credit card and just landed on the cash register counter there. One of the things I've been trying to do lately is listen to God more than I have been in the past. I want to I want to hear God more. I want to feel him more. And I just want to be intentional intent about that. Well, I saw this by the way it was brand new business cards. It it came flying out of my bill, but literally it looked like it had wings and landed on the counter. I thought, God, what are you doing? And I said, well, I must be able, I'm supposed to talk to her. So I said, uh, ma'am, do you have a church home? She's busy. She said, what? I said, do you have a church home? She said, no, I lock the doors and I shut the windows and I don't go anywhere near one of those. And I said, well, I pointed at my card and I said, if you ever have a change of heart, I want you to come to the Open Door Christian Church and check us out. You might be thoroughly surprised by what you hear and see and understand and see what God's doing. And wished her a good day, paid the bill and left. Why do I tell you that? I tell you that because there's a lot of skepticism in this world about a lot of things. Would you agree with that? I mean, there's skepticism about marriage, whether you really need to be married. There's uh, skepticism about gender identity. Should you be a man? Should you be a woman? What should you be? There's skepticism about politics, of course. That's all we hear about. And there's, of course, as I heard yesterday morning, there's a lot of skepticism about the church. But you know what? There's a lot of skepticism, especially about this book right here called the Bible. There's skepticism about its authenticity. There's a skepticism about whether 
it's really from God or whether it's just written by man. There is skepticism whether we really have the complete, whole, entire word of God or not. And on and on and on it goes. Well, tonight we're going to talk about all of that to some degree. And uh, we're going to ask and answer three questions. Deb, if you can keep up with me, the next one. Is the Bible believable? We're going to ask three questions tonight and try to answer them. What's the purpose of the Bible? And if I give myself to reading, studying, and believing the Bible, what might happen to me? What might change in my life? What might God do inside of me? If you take your Bibles tonight, we're going to look at two scriptures text specifically for this teaching. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. And I want you to know we don't intentionally put the verses up on the screen for you. Do you know why? Because we want you to bring your Bibles. And we want you to dig into them so you become familiar with your Bible. Remember, we're growing deeper in our lives. So if you're not bringing your Bible or don't have it, we encourage you to bring it. Otherwise, you're going to have to listen or you can look on with somebody who's sitting near you unless you have an app on your if you don't have an app on your phone I would suggest you get one it's all worthwhile to have 2 Timothy it's in the back of the New Testament if you see 1 and 2 Peter 1 and 2 John Jude and Revelation you've gone too far so it's just before that really a little bit these are impactful verses really impactful for understanding why the Bible 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Paul's talking to young Timothy. He's mentored him. Now Timothy's been in the ministry a little while. He's still young. He's had all kinds of problems, faced all kinds of issues, dealt with all kinds of people who are grumbling and probably chewing on him and disagreeing with him. And Paul's exhorting him to remember what you learned when you were young and from whom you've learned it. Verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. He's talking about his grandmother Eunice and his mother Lois from chapter 1 in here. Verse 15. From whom you learned it and how from childhood... You've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, hold you can hold your finger there. Turn over to Romans chapter 15 with me as well. Romans chapter 15. We're going to read two verses or three verses, verses 4, 5, and 6. Romans 15, verses 4, 5, and 6. It's back to your left in your Bible. Verse 4. When I read this, which I honestly remember reading for the very first time when I was in seminary, made a huge, huge, lifelong impact on me about the Bible. Verse 4. 
For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's start with the first question. Next slide. If the, is the Bible believable? Now, we're going to spend more time on this first question than on the other two altogether, so be patient with me for good reason. And we'll finally we'll get to whatever you think this might be up here. Is the Bible believable? Bible, the Bible's been the best-selling book of all times. It rated number one on the New York Times best-selling list. It was the top book for so long, year after year after year, that the New York Times finally just took it off and removed it. They don't even count it anymore. It was so popular. According to the Economist magazine, which is a secular magazine, there are over 100 million Bibles sold and given away each year so far in the 20th century. To give you a little comparison, the number one best-selling book in the entire world ever written is a book named Don Quixote. Pastor Steve, have you read that? Don Quixote, the book Don Quixote was written in the book 1605. It has sold more than 500 million copies since its inception. Stick with me. I'm giving you figures for a reason. I want you to know the magnanimous, audacious breadth, width, length, and depth that the Bible, the Holy Word of God, has saturated our world with. Gideon's International. Just one Christian organization alone dedicated to the distribution of the free and uh, giving away of Bibles has successfully distributed 2 billion Gideon Bibles from its inception in 1908 till the latest uh, trend I had was 2015. Did you get that? Don Quixote, since its inception in 1605, 500 million copies. The Bible, distributed by only by Gideon's International since 1908, has distributed over 2 billion Bibles. Well, what's the Bible? Next slide, please. The Bible is a collection of 66 books. It was formed over a period of about 1,500 years, written by 40 authors, give or take a couple, because we don't know, and you say, well, how do you, why do you say that, Rich? Because we don't know who wrote a few of the books. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. There's a few Psalms that are questioned on who the authors really are. But approximately 40 authors. They were shepherds. They were kings. They were scholars. They were fishermen. They were prophets. 
One was a cupbearer to Nehemiah, to the king. There was a priest. The Bible was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And it was written over from three different continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. And in light of all of that, the Bible's most remarkable quality, I believe, is the complete unity of the overall message, despite having 40 different authors, despite having been written over many centuries, and despite having been written about a hundred or more Maybe thousands of controversial subjects. They all told the same story with one message, these 40 authors. God's eternal love plan for us, mankind. Well, the question that I think we should ask is, how can there be, in this kind of a book... How can there be that kind of unity with one message over that much time? Well, let's let the Bible answer that. We read that from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul the Apostle, one of the scholars who wrote, in verse 15 said to Timothy, Timothy, from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Sacred there, writings, sacred means consecrated, consecrated pertaining to a deity, specifically to God. These assuredly refer to the Old Testament scriptures. Timothy, you've been acquainted with the Old Testament writings since you were a young child. Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 5, verse 39, when he was talking to the Pharisees. He said to them, You search the Scriptures, sacred writings. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Verse 16. Why can the Bible have this unity? Paul says we see where this unity originates. Paul says it's because it's God-breathed. All Scripture, verse 16, he tells Timothy, is breathed out by God. How can the Bible have this remarkable unity between 40 different authors and the endurance to last over the amount of time of about 1,500 years that it has when it was written? And the answer is God-breathed on the authors. Do you want to put... uh, You got it up there. Thank you. That's good for the podcast, right? (laughs) God breathed. I find this fascinating. We see in this unity that God did something over and above those 40 authors. Let me run a little experiment with you. I'm going to tell you in a moment, I want you to take a really deep breath. Sit up straight. And I want you to go and hold it. And when I tell you, let go, I want you to breathe it out very, very slowly through your mouth. Okay, ready? 
take a deep breath. Breathe it out slowly through your mouth. What you did was half of this God-breathed word, noustos. The word here for God-breathed is theopneustos. It's God-breathed. Theo, or theos, is God. Pneustos is breath, or breathe. And you put them to, those two words together, as Paul has, and he says all Scripture is breathed out by God. God breathed, and it only occurs this one single time in all of Scripture, and it owes its origins to the divine breath, the Spirit. The Bible owes its origins to the divine breath, the Spirit of God. You see, the human authors, Paul is telling Timothy here, were powerfully guided and they were directed by the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, they wrote not only without error, but of supreme value for us exactly what God wanted them to write so that we could have what we claim to hold today as the Holy Bible. It's all what God wanted it to be. It constitutes the infallible rule of faith and practice for us as mankind. Let me give you an example, a couple of examples here. Romans chapter 4, verses 23 to 24, talking about constituting the infallible rule of faith and practice. Paul's talking to the Romans about Abraham's faith and Abraham's faith being counted to him as righteousness. And he says there, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but also for ours. You see, when God breathed on Abraham and God breathed on the writers who recorded that event, It wasn't just written down for Abraham's sake to understand that you receive faith and it's accounted to you by righteousness alone, not by works lest any person should boast. And when that was written down, Paul says, that wasn't written down just for Abraham. It was written down for today for you and I also. It was counted to him, was not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. That's why I love Romans 15:4 that we read earlier as we began tonight. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instructions that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And verse 5 tells us who's the one who wrote God, who's a God who's of endurance and encouragement. He's a God who is God of endurance. That's why the Scriptures could last down through the ages. And encouragement for us so that the things that were written down weren't written down just for Abraham. They were written down for us as well. And the people who will follow us in this life until the Lord Jesus comes again. Now, take your Bible once more and would you turn with me to the back to the book of 2 Peter, just briefly before the book of Revelation. 
Second Peter chapter one, verses nineteen through twenty-one, where Peter, another author, different from Paul, who's written to Timothy, he's written to the Romans about the Word of God. He writes now about this writing of the Bible. Peter writes, verse nineteen, and we have something more sure. Chapter 1, verse 19. We have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Here it comes. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you know what we call this? We call this divine inspiration. God breathed, Peter is saying here, upon the authors so that as they wrote, they wrote the very words that God instructed them to. God used the authors. He used their individuality. He used their personalities. He used their vocabularies. He used their educational level or lack thereof to record and communicate one unified message from the beginning to the end of the book we call the Bible. Men spoke, Peter said, from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, let's ask a question. Does this mean Does this mean that God explicitly dictated every word that we have in the Bible, dictated every word explicitly to the authors? You know what the answer to that is? Yes and no. God used a variety of methods. God used a variety of processes to communicate His Word to the authors. Sometimes God did give very direct, very specific words, such as He did to the Apostle Paul, uh, I'm sorry, to the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. If you look in Revelation chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but several times it starts like this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, and he's dictating this to John, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. He does it again in chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, or Thyatira, write. You see, the risen Lord in that particular case was right there telling the Apostle Paul, the, the, the Apostle John, the author, what to write. And John records the very words that he hears at that moment from Jesus. But was it always done that way? No. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the author of Hebrews says that God spoke to our fathers by the prophets in many and various ways. Not always directly dictated. In Luke's Gospel... And Luke's one of the scholars, the educated. He's a physician, a great man of detail, quite eloquent in telling us that his gospel was delivered to him by eyewitnesses 
and ministers of the Word and through his own in-depth research. You see, though, the word God breathed, theos, theopneustos, that is inspired by God, occurs only here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, chapter 3, verse 16. The idea is actually found in many, many other passages throughout Scripture. Exodus chapter 20, all the way back and towards the beginning of the Old Testament, verse 1. To Moses and to us, God spoke all these words, talking about the Ten Commandments. To King David in 2 Samuel 23, verse 2. King David recorded this. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me His word on my tongue. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, talking about the birth of uh, Jesus, the virgin birth, Matthew records, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, and there's many, many more, the Apostle Paul says this, to the Corinthians. If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. What's all this called? It's all called divine inspiration. God breathed out His Word through the lives of those 40 authors, what He wanted written, And he used them in their own individual uniqueness to write down for us today what we have as the Holy Word of God. Ultimately, those human authors, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, were breathed out upon by the Holy of Holies, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. God superintended in their lives exactly what He wanted them using their own unique writing styles, their own unique personalities that are still recorded for us today exactly what we have which is inspired by Him, the Word of God. Are you thankful for that? I hope you are. I really hope you are. Well, that brings us up to the next question. We're still in question one, but we're on to a sub-question. Is the Bible believable? It would lead to a natural question that's often asked by skeptics. Can I trust the Bible? Is it inerrant? Without heirs? Well, the Open Door Christian Church, our statement of faith says this about our view of the origination of the Bible and about the issue of inerrancy. We believe that the entire Bible is nothing more and nothing less than the Word of God to us today, and it is presented to us without error. It's the final authority for faith, and it's the ultimate truth for our lives and for eternity. But what's the meaning of inerrancy? The meaning of inerrancy is that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to what God divinely breathed out upon those authors to write down in the original manuscripts. 
The Bible clearly teaches us that God cannot lie, nor can He speak falsely. This is really important because it goes to the fact of inerrancy. 2 Samuel 7, verse 28. And now, O Lord God, You are God, and Your words are true. Titus 1, verses 1 to 2. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And Hebrews 6.18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Well, how do we know that the Bible is inerrant or without errors? Well, we're going to go and start talking for a few moments about something called textual criticism. Next slide, please. You say, Rich, what in the world is textual criticism? The science of textual criticism. It really tests the reliability of the original manuscripts over of the Bible over and against the copies that have been copied from those original manuscripts down through the years. Simply stated, it's like this. Textual criticism is a method used to determine whether the original manuscripts of the Bible, what they said, and whether the copies that were copied from the original manuscripts, which was put into what we have for a Bible today, is really inerrant and without errors. Is it really God-breathed, and is it really the divine Word of God, what we have today, that God's intended for? You see, what we have is tens and tens and thousands of copies of the original manuscripts. And the original manuscripts date all the way back to the first century from the moment of the cross all the way up to about the fifth, I'm sorry, up to the 15th century when the last copies were copied until the printing press and things came into being. It's in these manuscripts that, yes, in the copies there are some minor differences. There's a few significant differences. There's even a couple of majors that have to be dealt with. Textual criticism, then, is the study of these manuscripts in an attempt to determine what the original reading actually was. Okay, here we go. There are six thousand pieces of paper on this table tonight. Six thousand. There are six thousand copies of the original manuscripts in the Greek New Testament that are in existence. They are nearly full copies in in their entirety. There are twenty-four thousand 633 pieces of manuscript Greek texts that are in existence. 
and the science of textual criticism starts at the farthest copies away from the original and they begin to compare and relate and record and they compare it with one copy and another copy and another copy and another copy to get back as close as possible to the original 27 manuscripts that were written by the 40 authors by the authors of the New Testament. There's 27 pages representing 27 books in the New Testament right here. 27 authors first wrote these, as Pastor Jeff related a week or two weeks ago, shortly after the time when Jesus died on the cross, approximately 18 years, the first Manuscript was written, probably Galatians, maybe James, maybe both at the same time, we don't know, about 48 A.D. or so. The last original manuscript was written by the Apostle John, the 27th. Remember, there's 27 books in the New Testament. The 27th manuscript, the book of Revelation, was the last one written about 95 A.D. So these original manuscripts were written from about 48 A.D. to 95 A.D. It's really important to know that. Why? Here's two reasons. Number one, this event happened when Jesus was hung on the cross approximately sometime between 30 and 33 A.D. Only 18 years later, or less than that, maybe 16 years later, the first manuscript, probably James and and Galatians, was written, and it came into its existence. And just a few short years, it kept going like that, through the 50s and the 60s and the 70s till it got to the 90s, 95 A.D., when the last manuscript was completed of the 27 books of the Greek New Testament. Here's what I find fascinating. The earliest copies, copies of the original manuscripts have been discovered that were actually discovered at the end of the first century. So by the time John probably got done writing, there were already copies being made in maybe 90 A.D., 95 A.D., whatever, that were beginning to already overlap with the originals. And what's really cool is And here it goes. I'm 63 years old. If you take 63 years off of 95 A.D., it puts me born at this event, pretty much. So that in my lifetime, in my lifetime, and if you're nearly as old as I am, The original copies would have been written and, I mean, the original manuscripts, forgive me, and 
the beginning copies, the earliest copies of the originals would have begun being written as well. I just think that's so cool. I don't know why, but I do. And from there on, this was discovered about in the first in the end of the first century. The second set was discovered about 125 A.D., not very many years later, the second set of copies. And then from there, more and more copies were discovered until 6,000 full Greek manuscripts nearly in their entirety are in existence today that can be textual, textually scientifically criticized, critically analyzed backwards to get to as close to the original writings as could possibly be gotten in the earliest manuscripts. You understand that? You see, these, they don't exist. The original manuscripts don't exist today. They've either been lost, they've either been hidden, or they've been destroyed. We don't know. But we have the earliest manuscripts that were written, begun being copied nearly right in line with the originals. And we have the second set, about 125 A.D., that is so close in proximity, it's like a brother or a sister in the family. And then from there, it becomes more and more and more. 6,000 manuscripts, 24,633 pieces of the original Greek manuscript copies that describe the inerrant word of God. What's that got to do with inerrancy? Through the scientific discovery, the science of textual criticism, as the comparisons are made, wordings, sentence structures, writing styles, authors, everything is compared. They can get it down that it's almost 100% certain that what we have today is the God-breathed, 99% certain that what we have today is the God-breathed Bible that Paul was talking to Timothy about. 6,000 manuscripts. Now, let me give you a little comparison. We had to hurry up here. If you took a very, very ancient book, for instance, let me grab this one. Aristotle's Ode to Poetics. It's not really. Aristotle's writings, Ode to Poetics, was written 350 B.C., before Christ. It was not discovered until about 1100 A.D. So we're going from 350 B.C. all the way over here to about 1100 A.D. because this is 1500. And there were only 49 manuscripts ever found. And the earliest one was found in a gap of 1400 years between the writing and the time that they were discovered. We don't have that in the Bible. Our earliest manuscripts of the Bible 
God breathed out overlaps the original writings of the early New Testament manuscripts. There's so much evidence. I'm going to skip some of this for time. There's more evidence for the Bible's authenticity for the, more than any other piece of antiquity out there. Textual analysis begins with a historical investigation, beginning with the latest documents. It works backwards to the earliest documents. And there's enormous, enormous, enormous amount of evidence for the authenticity of the copies of the original manuscripts. If you have uh, ever go to Washington, D.C., Karen and I go there fairly often because our kids have lived there and it looks like they're moving back there again. I want you to go to the Museum of the Bible. It opened in uh, 2017. We went there the last journey out there a, a year or so ago. It's absolutely fascinating. Don't miss that opportunity to go to the Museum of the Bible downtown Washington, D.C. You will be overwhelmed with uh, how well all of this is laid out, how well preserved the manuscripts are, and uh, how the story of the Bible and the different various printings of the Bible are all laid out. It's absolutely fascinating. Well, let's move on. Not only is there uh, inerrancy through the uh, manuscripts that have been discovered, but archaeologically there's attestation to the authenticity of manuscripts as well. In the Qumran, I should have their pictures up here, Pastor Stephen Dater's pictures from their trip to Israel, in Qumran, just a little ways outside of Jerusalem, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 19, the years 1947 through 1956. Just 13 miles outside of Jerusalem, about 1,300 feet below sea level, what they discovered was mostly fragments of the Old Testament of every book in the Old Testament except one, the book of Esther. They never found anything that attested to the book of Esther. <laughs> Just occurs to me. 1947 to 1956. I was born in 1955. There it goes again. It's crazy. And what they discovered in one of, it's a whole bunch of caves in Qumran. It's amazing. You stand down there and you look up and there's this, uh, well, call them mountains, I don't know, big hills. And they have all kinds of holes in them. Like people could, big enough people could crawl into them. I mean, it's just full of holes where people could have lived there. And in those caves, in Cave 4, for instance, they numbered all the caves. In Cave 4, it produced the largest find, about 15,000 fragments from more than 500 manuscripts were found. All in all, scholars have identified the remains of about 825 to 870 separate scrolls. And one of the most major finds in all was the scroll, almost the complete scroll of the book of what we call Isaiah. Fascinating. Go to the history. Uh, go to the Bible Museum in Washington D.C. and you'll read all that. Let's go on to the second major question tonight. What's the purpose of the Bible? These two will go really fast. 
What's the purpose of the Bible? Well, our two biblical texts in 2 Timothy 3 and Romans 15.4, I think, answer that question pretty fully. In Romans 15.4, whatever was written in the former days, purpose, was written for our instruction that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have help, might have hope. Salvation, the purpose of the writing of the Bible, was that we would discover salvation, the hope, of eternal life, Paul is saying here. In 2 Timothy 3.15, the sacred writings are able, Paul says to Timothy, to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And verses 16 and 17 tell us the Scriptures were useful. What's the purpose of the Bible? The Scriptures were useful for teaching, reproving, correcting, and for training so that we may be competent and equipped for every good work. Pay attention to what the Bible says, and we'll learn what it's for. You see, the Bible's good for saving us. The Bible's good for teaching us, for correcting us. The Bible's good for restoring us from brokenness. The Bible's good for training us in how to live godly, holy lives in this present day, in uprightness. The whole purpose of the Bible is to bring us into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Nicky Gumbel of the Alpha Course says this, God has given us guidelines through the Bible on how to live because He has the best in mind for us. Think about that. It's a love letter from the person we love, Gumbel says. That's what Jesus is saying in John 5.39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Purpose of the Bible. The whole purpose is to bring us into a relationship that really matters. Have you come into it? A relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole purpose is to bring you and I into an eternal relationship that transforms our hearts, transforms our minds, transforms our words, transforms our actions. That's the purpose of the Bible. To inform us, to teach us about a relationship that is, Paul wrote to the Romans, that's based on faith where our faith is counted to us as righteousness as it was to Abraham. Third big question. I told you this was going to go really fast. If I give myself to reading, studying, and believing the Bible, what might happen to me? I mean, really. If I set aside time to read the Bible, to spend some time in it, what might happen? Will anything happen to me? Well, Paul says that in Timothy, in verse 17, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The New Living Translation, God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. What will happen to my life? Well, we can gain a deeper understanding and an intimate look at who God really is and what He's really like. If I give myself to reading and studying and believing the Bible, I'll learn about heaven and the life hereafter. There's more than this life waiting for us. We'll learn how to look at evil and how to deal with evil when evil comes knocking on our door. 
We'll learn how to love and serve people. We'll learn to what to look for in a mate, a marriage partner. We'll learn how to have a healthy and successful marriage when we give ourselves to believing, reading, and studying the Bible. We'll learn how to be a better parent and to raise kids. We'll learn how to be a good boss, a godly boss, and a godly employee. We'll learn how to let go of regrets and hurts and bad events that have injured us in life. We'll discover lasting joy, ever eternal, lasting joy. Someone wrote, studying the Bible can be compared to mining for gold. If we make little effort and merely sift through the pebbles in a stream, we're only going to find a little bit of gold dust. But the more we make an effort to really dig into it, the more reward we will gain for our effort. I love what Pastor Rick Warren of Saddleback Church wrote. Reading the Bible, it generates life. Reading the Bible, it produces change. It heals hurts. It builds character. It transforms circumstances. It imparts joy. It overcomes adversity. It defeats temptation. It infuses hope. It releases power. It cleanses the mind. Is that worth reading and studying the Bible for? Let me give you the practical side of this tonight, and then we'll be done. And I challenge you, if you're not, and I know many, many people are not, many who call us ourselves Christians are not in the Word of God. May I challenge you out of this tonight. There's 6,000 manuscripts written for you. Copies. God breathed out for you so that you can know Him more intimately, more personally, and walk more deeply in love with Him and Him with you. May I I challenge you to develop a plan for reading the Bible with the help of the Holy Spirit and His insight. Find a quiet place at home, work, out on the beach, somewhere, Find a quiet place and stop your life and think and listen and pray to what you're reading in God's Holy Word breathed out for you. Read a few verses. You don't have to read chapter after chapter. Read a few verses. Pray about them. Pray through them. Think about them. What does it say about God and God's character? What does it say about you and what you're to do? Wrestle with it. Think it through hard. Ask yourself the question, do you think the Lord is trying to speak to you through this reading that you're doing? Will you listen to it and obey Psalm 19 says this, verse 7, verse 10 and 11. The law of the Lord is perfect. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. In keeping them, there is great reward. 
with this. Yesterday morning, my best friend, one of my best friends, Curtis Hansen, passed away a couple of months ago from ALS. I had the privilege to speak at his funeral. His last name is Hansen. He owned a cabinet shop over here uh, east of me in London. He and his wife, Linda. Linda's in the time of life where what's she going to do with the business? Is she going to keep it? to keep it going. Her brother works for her in the shop. and They have another employee too. Or should she close it down? Should she sell it? What's to do? Curtis was the master carpenter, cabinet builder behind it all. I shared at the beginning today that I'm trying to listen more to God and respond to what He says. Yesterday morning on my way to Wilmer, I got over by Howie suddenly realized I'm following a pickup in a trailer and in big, big, bold letters on the back of it said, Hanson Woodworking and Architectural Products. Now, it wasn't Curtis and Linda's. It was another company. But it reminded me immediately to start praying for Linda and praying for wisdom of what she should do with her business because I know one of her employees is leaving her shortly. So she's going to be down to one. What should she do? As I was praying and praying and praying for her, following this, looking at this name, praying for her and interceding for her, all of a sudden God swooped down and went, boom, call her. I said, Lord, why call her? And he said, because you need to tell her what to do with her business. And he laid out in three or four sentences in my mind, Immediately, what I was supposed to tell her on what to do with her business in the days ahead. I called her on the phone. I thought, this is crazy. She answered the phone at 7.30 in the morning. I said, Linda, it's rich. I said, I don't know if God's talking, but God's got something to tell you, I think. And I explained to her what the Lord had talked to me about, about the business. And she said, oh, oh. Oh, and I won't let end it there. You know, I wouldn't have had that. I would not have had that had I not opened my Bible on a regular basis with the intention of listening, stopping, listening, and praying to see what God has for me and for those He wants to touch Next week, you can put that slide up. Next week, Pastor Jeff, that concludes tonight. Next week, Pastor Jeff is going to teach on how true love is conquering the world. We hope you'll come for that. We hope you're enjoying growing deeper with the Lord Jesus Christ. In the back as you walk out, if you brought your offering and like to contribute your offering tonight, there are cream cans on each side of the door. Please feel free to just place your offering in those cans and the counters will take care of it from there. Thank you for coming tonight. Thank you for giving if you're giving. Thank you for studying God's Word. I pray you'll grow and go deeper. That's our prayer for you. Open the Word of God and let the God divinely breathe on you through His Word. The inspiration of His Word that He gave through those authors so many years ago. Trustworthy, 
inspired, inerrant, full of grace and truth. Would you stand with me? Father, thank you for tonight and thank you for the privilege we've had to gather in this place. Lord, I pray that somehow, some way, you've spoken into our hearts. And God, that we might leave here taking what we've learned, what we've heard from you, and taking it home and applying it to our lives. So God, go with us. Go with us. Thank you that we never walk alone apart from you. That's your promise. So God, do in us and through us exceedingly abundantly more than we can think or imagine. And we give you all glory and honor for your word of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great rest of the week. God bless you.